we're going to cover all of half of a verse this morning. <laughs> Honestly, when I sat down, I had every intention of covering nine verses, only made it through half of one. But it's an important one, a very important one. This is lesson number six in our um, Daniel study. If you've missed all the previous lessons, they were mostly introduction. We're finally starting to get into the narrative. Today's lesson is entitled, as you can see on the board, A Purposed What? Heart. A Purposed Heart. You know, Eve, Eve, Adam's Eve, she could have conversed with Satan all day long. She could have learned everything that Satan had to teach her, lies and all, and yet she would not have been disobedient to the spoken word of God. And Satan could have called her by another name other than the name Adam gave her, Eve. He could have called her Luciferina <laughs> after himself. And she could have even answered him by that name, and yet she would not have been disobedient to the spoken word of God. It was when Eve, and more critically when Adam, partook of that which had strictly been forbidden by God's revealed word, that sin entered into the human race. And in light of today's lesson, which is uh, with regard to the food and drink that was set before Daniel, it's interesting to recall that the first sin of man dealt with putting something into his body that had been forbidden by God, by God's word. However, unlike Adam and Eve, Daniel purposed in his heart, what? That he would not defile himself with the intake of something that was in direct violation of the proclaimed will of God. So the subject matter of this lesson, A Purposed Heart, deals with a pivotal test for a young teen, Jewish teen, newly enrolled in the Babylonian Brainwashing Academy. And really, if you think about it, it was a test that was really quite similar to the test that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, may have had his requirements for selecting the young Jewish captives who would serve him um, eventually after they finished their three-year academy. They would serve him in the palace. But the Most High God, El Elyon, as Daniel calls him repeatedly in his book, has far higher standards for those he chooses to serve him than those the world looks to to serve the world. In contrast to the world's search for, what does the world search for? The good looking, right? In contrast to the world's look for the good looking, the cunning, the capable, or we could go back to our C's, you know, girls, the cute, <laughs> the cute, the cunning, and the capable. God seeks for those who have solid character, integrity, and, and strong convictions that are based on what? The word of God, their faith in the word of God the truths of his word. And he found such a candidate in an extraordinarily remarkable young man named Daniel. Now in our outline of chapter one, remember chapter one deals with Daniel's personal history. We're moving now from the subject of his deportation from Judah 
to Babylon, which is what we covered in verses 1 to 7, and we're moving on to the subject of his devotion, verses 8 to 16. As I said, however, we're only going to cover half of a verse today, and the reason for this is because this is really the key verse of the book that tells us about Daniel himself. Daniel, the young man who grew to be an elderly man. In effect, verse 8a, because that's just the first half of the verse, in effect, it tells us everything that we need to know about what made Daniel so extraordinary. His crowning, uncompromising commitment decision that was made, he really won the battle in verse 8, determined the pattern really for the rest of his life. So this lesson is going to be dedicated to Daniel's purposed resolution not to defile himself with the king's provision. And it is most probable that if Daniel did not do in his heart what he did in verse 8, we probably never would have heard of him. So this is a key verse. So let's read it. Daniel 1, just the first part of the verse. It says, but, but, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. All right, can you believe we're going to spend the next hour just on that? (laughs) Yes, those of you who know me. (laughs) Daniel submitted to the schooling that he was to undergo for the next three years, didn't he? He submitted to the schooling, to the education, even though it was not going to be based on a biblical worldview. Far from it, as a matter of fact. He and the others who were with him in that academy, we're calling it, just being facetious, but they would be taught many things that would be an attempt on the part of their Babylonian educators to eliminate from their thinking, from the thinking of these young boys, such things as their heritage. They kind of wanted to brainwash, you know, wipe the slate clean, get them to forget about their heritage, about their homeland, about their loyalties, their families, and most importantly, their faith in God. Well, did you realize that there is nothing in the word of God that strictly forbids believers from receiving an education from the world? There's nothing in the Bible that, that forbids us from having an education from the world. And you know what? The truth is the world has a lot to offer as far as education is concerned. Think about some of the characters in the Bible. Where was Abraham educated? Ur of the Chaldees, right? Basic same area as Daniel in the Chaldees of Babylonia. Um, Where was Moses educated? In Egypt, Pharaoh's palace. What about Ruth, a Moabitess? She was educated in Moab, obviously. And uh, Esther, she was educated in the, during the Medo-Persian Empire. There is no sin pronounced upon those who are educated in the world system. How many of you were educated in the world system? <laughs> Aren't you glad then? Because <laughs> I was. I'm a, I'm the product of the public school system, and I was even a teacher in the public school system. I taught at King's School. I just got to thinking about it. Wasn't that a great name? And it wasn't even a Christian school, but it was called King's Consolidated School out in the farm fields, the corn fields of Illinois. But um, there's no sin pronounced on those educated in the world system. However, where we as Christians need to be super careful is being able to sort the good from the bad, the truth from, from the error, truth from, truth from falsehood, hoods. The sin 
comes when we believe the lies of the world and we cast out the truth of God's word. And to do that, to be able to sort the good from the, the, the evil, what do we need to know to be able to do that? We need to know. We need to know God's word in order to be able to do that. And we need to teach our children the word of God. So even if our children or our grandchildren are in Christian schools or if they're being homeschooled with Christian material, uh, they encounter, they are going to encounter, and I promise you even if they're about that big, they have already encountered a whole lot of information about the world's perspective on things. Just take them one time through Walmart and they know the world's perspective on things. So you can't hide them, you know, unless you raise them in a bubble, you can't hide them from what the world is trying to teach them and brainwash them. You know, whether you send your kids to a public school or home school or send them to a Christian school, where is the bottom line? The home, the home. And that's what it sure was with Daniel, wasn't it? it came from a godly home. Sin comes for the Christian when we compromise the principles of righteousness that are found in God's word and put aside his truths and his commandments for our own expediency purposes so that we are accepted by the world. You know, when we, when we put aside his truths and say they're too intolerant, too narrow, what is that? It's because we want to be accepted by the world. And it's because th if we do that, then we can enjoy the world's lifestyle. And a lot of Christians want to do that, right? So they compromise on the word. The sin comes when we allow the world to destroy our worship of God and, and allow the world to destroy our service and our testimony for the Lord. And it comes when we become uh, friends with the world by accepting the ideas and the thoughts, the lifestyle, the philosophies, the ways of the world above God's ways. What does the Bible have to say, James 4, 4? Friendship with the world is enmity with God. The sin comes when we love the world because no man can love two masters or serve two masters. You can't serve the world, mammon, and God. You know, you're going to wind up hating one and loving the other too much. You just can't do that. You can't ride the fence. Um, if you love the world, that is in direct disobedience to the word of God, which says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Don't get too attached to the things in the world. They're not going to be around forever. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in, in him. That's what it says in the word of God. But there is no sin in being in the world. That's a good thing because we we're all born in the world, right? There's no sin in being in the world and educated by the world. However, when the world comes into the believer, that's where the sin comes in. Daniel had been very well grounded in his faith, obviously by his parents. And uh, remember, he was a young boy, and his parents, when they were raising him, were under the reign of good King Josiah, who really cleaned up things in Israel, and there was a spiritual revival. So he was well-grounded. He was able, therefore, to filter everything that he was taught by his new Babylonian teachers through the grid of the Word of God, which is exactly what you and I are to be teaching our next generation to be able to do. Everything they take in from the world needs to be filtered through the word of God. Actually, um, learning the world's philosophies and learning the world's twisted theories, such as evolution, and learning the world's religions can be an added 
benefit to the well-grounded Christian because it makes him or her better able to point out the weaknesses and the faults and the errors and the illogical reasoning of their ways. I think of some men like Francis Schaeffer and Ravi Zacharias and Ken Ham and people that have studied other religions and other philosophies and they're well-grounded in their faith. Now there's a danger if you're not well-grounded, but they're so well-grounded they know how to debate and how to, to really counteract all the falsehoods. And even studying pagan mythology and false religions and cults, which is, of course, what that would be included in this Babylonian brainwashing academy for Daniel and the others. But even those things are not prohibited in the word of God. Engaging in their practices is definitely prohibited, but not studying about them, not learning about them. And yet, having said that, I do have to add a warning, a great caution um, should be taken not to become all absorbed in something false, like a cult or a false religion. And there are people who have studied it you know, their whole lives, and I think they're too consumed with it. We should focus more on the truth than on error, right? Always focus more on the truth than the error. Furthermore, if the believer is not well grounded enough in scripture to be able to discern truth from error, the effect of a study of a false religion or a cult or a false, false philosophy could be uh, seriously harmful. So, you know, it's not something to study lightly. You really need to be well grounded in scripture before you do that or be under the, the teaching of someone who can show you the errors, you know, let's compare this to the Bible and what they say. But back to Daniel. He not only submitted to the education of the Babylonians and um, the clothing. I was reading a book and it said he would have to wear, get out of his Jewish clothing and wear Babylonian clothing, which was quite different. So he had different education, a different, you know, different customs, um, a different clothing. But he also submitted to the Babylonian heathen name that he was assigned by Ashpenaz, the prince of the eunuchs. What was his name? Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect his life, or Baal protect his life. Did you know that the Bible does not declare it a sin for a person to be called by a pagan name? Some of you actually have pagan names. <laughs> If you did some research, <laughs> I don't want to call out any of them to put you on the spot, but uh, um, but, the, but the Bible does not say, thou shalt not be called by any false god's name. So you're in the clear. <laughs> Although the, Babylonian, the Babylonians changed Daniel's God-honoring name, what could they not change? They could not change his God-honoring honoring heart, praise the Lord. So don't worry if you have a pagan name as long as you have a God-honoring heart. Uh, nor was his name changed in God's eternal book of life. What do you think his name is up there in the book of life? Daniel. And you know what Daniel repeatedly calls himself? They might call him Belteshazzar, but throughout his book, he refers to himself as Daniel. God is my judge, which he never forgot. The one he would stand before as judge was God, not Nebuchadnezzar or Cyrus, or somebody else. Well, we discover then that the matter over which Daniel drew the line, that he would not cross over, he would not compromise, that matter was what really, to, to many, might seem like the least defiling of the whole propaganda program. 
It was the matter of the food and the drink that was set before him. Now, a lot of people would say, well, I think the education, you know, learning about astrology and cults and things, you know, pagan gods, it doesn't seem like that would wear, be where you drew the line. Or even that pagan honoring name or wearing that silly outfit with the turban and all that. <laughs> no, but he drew the line when it came to the food and drink. drink. And we asked the question, why did he not object to the Babylonian education or the name? but he did object to the Babylonian food and drink. Well, why is it? It's because he drew the line of no compromise in his life on what the word of God has to say. He drew the line when it came very clear to what scripture prohibited and didn't prohibit it. His early education by his parents, who did live under that great spiritual revival of King Josiah, that education would have included, it would have emphasized, actually, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the Jews call it. And one of those books is Leviticus, not a very exciting book for us to read through, is it, as Gentiles, you know, in the New Testament, but it's full of information. It is what the Jews call the health manual, the health manual of God's people. In it, God specifically through Moses gave his people a list of various unclean animals that they were not permitted to eat. Why did he do that? Well, because the whole message of the Lord from cover to cover in the, in the Bible is that those who know him are to live lives different, different lives from the people of the, of the world. We're in the world but we're not to be, what, of the world. And that's actually even the meaning of the, the Greek word for church. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. What does it mean? Called out ones. We're in the world, but we're called out to live separated lives, distinct lives, different lives, lives that show who we serve, that shine bright for our Savior. When God designed the nation of Israel, he built principles in his law for her that included commandments and statutes and principles concerning their conduct and, the, and their morality. He gave them principles even concerning their clothing and their calendar and all about the Sabbath and what they were not to do on the Sabbath. And uh, he gave them instructions about agriculture. Remember, every seventh year they weren't to plant the, plant the ground. Um, he gave them a lot of information about how to, to purify themselves and, and about sanitation. This is why they call it the health manual. There's a lot of stuff so that the Jewish people were a lot healthier than the other peoples of the world because of what God told them, how to sanitize things. And he told them who they were to marry and who they were not to marry and what feasts they were to celebrate. And he also told them what they were forbidden to eat. The Lord was building into this very special nation safeguards that were intended to prevent the people from intermingling with the nations around them and thus, you know, assimilating with them and losing their identity as a special people. They had to remain separate. Why? Because God had promised that it would be through this people, this nation, that he would send the one and only Savior for the whole world. So they had to stay together as a people so he could keep his promise and save, uh, send the Savior. <clears throat> well, one of the safeguards concerned Israel's diet. 
God kept his people from blending together with pagans or intermarrying with pagans by giving them a strict menu, which included a very specific method of how they were to slaughter the animals that they ate. And the slaughter process ensured the complete draining of blood from that animal. They were to drain the blood of every animal they were allowed to eat. And they had a method of actually slitting the throat that was painless. The animal was dead in two seconds. All the blood would drain out. The only creatures they did not have to drain the blood from were fish. Otherwise, they had to drain all the blood. And that's, you know, you call, talk about kosher. Kosher is making sure all the blood is out of the animal. Um, now, almost all social events of any culture include what? What do we have over on that table? <laughs> it's just part of our uh, fellowship that we always center any social event around eating and drinking. The, the Jewish people, you see, by having this strict what they could eat and how it had to be prepared, they would not be able to mix socially because of their eating and food preparation restrictions. How many times would you you know, invite a Jewish family over if you knew you had to go out and s slit the, the neck of the animal and it couldn't be just any animal, it had to be certain ones and you had to drain all the blood out of it and you had to do this and that and you had, you know, it'd make it difficult. And they would know they couldn't go to somebody else's house because they wouldn't prepare the food that way. So that's how the Lord kept them separate. They'd not be, they wouldn't be able to mix socially. So intermarriage would be less likely to occur. And that was God's preventative measure to ensure the separation of his people. He gave them a list of unclean animals that they could not eat. Now, are you ready? Here are some of the animals they could not eat. This will be in your notes, so you don't have to write them down. But this is all laid out for us in Leviticus. They couldn't eat camel. Okay, I'm all right on that one. <laughs> um, rabbit. How many of you have ever, ever had rabbit? Yeah, I've, I've eaten rabbit. Um, of course, we all know they can't eat pig, right? No bacon, which is a good thing. Health manual. I just read today on the Internet news that now bacon is carcinogenic. They're saying, you know, no more bacon. Can't eat bacon. It'll cause cancer. Um, they can't eat shellfish. No shellfish, which would include lobster. Uh-oh. <laughs> no more lobsters, no oysters, shrimp, clams, or crabs, that kind of thing. No shellfish. They can't eat any birds of prey or scavenger birds, which would be eagle and buzzards and vultures and kites, K-I-T-E, ravens, owls, nighthawks, swans. Um, did you know swans was a big delicacy? I bet Nebuchadnezzar served swan, and they would have the whole swan. Beautiful swan. Oh, that's kind of sad because swan is so beautiful. But they weren't allowed to eat swan meat or pelican, storks, <laughs> herons, or bats. Ugh. They couldn't eat any rodents. All of you that like squirrel meat. No rodents, no reptiles, no amphibians. Oh, my son would have a problem with his frog legs. And no insects. You know, I'm okay on everything except the pig meat. <laughs> no more pig and pig. That would be hard for me. Um, but it's interesting that there was one exception. Did you want to say something? Somebody had their hand up? Oh, you too. <laughs> um, there was one exception for insects. You know, they were allowed to eat one particular insect. And you know what it was? And 
locusts. John the Baptist, you see, did not break the dietary law when he ate honey and locusts. Cool. Other nations and, and people groups obviously had no such prohibitions, and undoubtedly Nebuchadnezzar's table would have been full of meat, all kinds of meat and things that, was, that would be designated unclean, according to God's word. And yet, even if there were meats on King Nebuchadnezzar's table that were permissible for the Jewish boys to eat, such as beef, they were allowed to eat beef, okay? Um, even if there was meat that they could eat, the Le Levitical regulation of draining the blood from the animal prior to cooking it would not have been done by the Babylonian chefs. In fact, any Jew who consumed blood in his meat was to be cut off from his people. That's what it says in Leviticus. That's, God took it very seriously. No blood in the meat you eat, or you're cut off from your people. Why? Well, God then gave the reason. Here it is. You all know this verse. The life of the flesh is in the blood. Do you know if we didn't have any blood in our bodies, our flesh would be dead? The life of the flesh. The flesh is okay to eat because there's no life in the flesh. But the life of the flesh is in the blood. By the way, did you know that God said that way back through Moses, long before, long before um, 1616 AD, which was when the world got very excited because a scientist by the name of William Harvey discovered that blood carries oxygen from the lungs throughout the whole body, making blood circulation the key factor in physical life and the whole world got excited. And the people who knew the Bible said, so what, William Harvey? All you had to do was read Leviticus. God told us that a long time ago. Blood carries oxygen throughout, you know, from the lungs throughout our whole body, and that's what gives us physical life. You see what the Lord was doing, what God was doing? Who is our creator? Who created the human body? Who made blood the life of the flesh? God, okay, in having made blood, the life of the flesh, our creator was demonstrating how very vital the sinless shed blood of his son, the God-man, was going to be for the atonement uh, of the whole world, the atonement of sin and giving of eternal life. You see, it's Christ's blood, Christ's sinless blood that carries life to the whole body of believers, so he was giving a picture of all of that and saying, you know, and making life, uh, blood, the life of the body. It's interesting. You've got to think about that one. I know I'm getting puzzled looks. but Because meat was to be completely drained of blood before eating it, Daniel knew that he could not eat the meat from the king's table without violating God's kosher law. But there was still another issue involved with the meat and the drink that was served on King Nebuchadnezzar's table. You see, there were so many Babylonian gods and goddesses in uh, that city that almost all the meat and all the wine that would be served, especially in the king's palace, had first been dedicated to one of those gods or goddesses, to pagan idols. To eat meat or to drink wine that had been offered to an idol was a form of sanctioning that idol. 
It was showing one's approval of that particular god or goddess by participating in that which had been offered to it. So Daniel rightly had a problem with that. The Jewish people were not to honor any other god but Jehovah. Now, since it's obvious that Daniel had great knowledge and appreciation for the Old Testament scripture, it's also likely that he was very familiar with a proverb. Proverb 22, verses 1 to 3, says this. When you sit to eat with a ruler, a king, a ruler, consider diligently what is before you. Be not desirous of his dainties because they are deceitful meat. Interesting, huh? Because that was definitely true in this case. The food put before him was deceitful meat. Nebuchadnezzar knew that all those delicacies on his table, you know, so appealing, would entice these young, hungry teenage boys, um, and it, they, would, they would feel obligated. They weren't in a prison being served you know, bread and water. And so they would, feel, they would become his loyal servants. He would create a sense of obligation to him by serving them all these wonderful delicacies. It was just a major part of the Babylonian brainwashing academy. So it was deceitful meat. Now the drink offered the Hebrew captor, captives had an additional problem for Daniel. Robert Dick Wilson, who is the famous Old Testament scholar, or one of them, tells us that the Babylonians, this is going to make you sick, but the Babylonians were fond of drinking their wine mixed with, what am I going to say? Blood, blood you got it. Blood and wine. Ugh. Uh, blood was strictly taboo for the Jewish people. Remember what I said? If you consume blood, um, you're cut off from your people. So uh, whether it was consumed in meat or in a beverage, it was taboo for a Jewish person. Isn't that gross to think of mixing blood in anything? But even if the king's wine had not been offered to one of the many Babylonian gods or goddesses, and even if it was not mixed with any blood, there are plenty of warnings in the Old Testament about not consuming strong drink. And I give you in your notes all kinds of verses. This is why believing Jews um, would mix their wine. You know, they, did, they didn't have good water and milk and all that, so they d did drink wine. They dr drank the fruit of the vine, but what they would do is they would mix that fruit with three to six parts water and sometimes even as much as 10 parts water. So one part wine, 10 parts water, be very, very, almost impossible to get intoxicated. It would be so diluted. And therefore it was not strong drink. But on the other hand, the Babylonians did, di did not dilute their wine with water. In fact, they, when they did mix it with something, it was blood which is very typical of what pagan religions and, and occult, occultists do. They do drink blood, which is gross, really gross. Well, <clears throat> Daniel had strong convictions about eating and drinking meat and um, uh, eating meat and drinking the king's wine. And where did his convictions come from? 
Where? From the scripture, from the word of God. You see, convictions come when we read and seriously, honestly um, study the word of God. People who don't have a lot of holy convictions are not really reading the word of God. Otherwise, they would. And nobody has to tell you what those convictions would be. They're there, and you can't help but see them. But um, that's where you get your convictions, because this is God speaking. So Daniel was not like a chameleon. He didn't change his colors when he was placed in a new environment. Think of yourselves, if you were him, as a young teenager, going into this totally new environment teenage boy with all that wonderful food. But he did not choose the low, go with the flow road, did he? Which would be so easy to do. He chose the highest and the holiest road. The one thing that he decided he wanted and desired above all else was righteousness, to not defile himself. It says he, he purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. Remember now, this is about his de de decision regarding his level of commitment, his level of witness that he wanted to have before his peers and before the king and everybody in the court and before the other Jews. This is about his commitment level and his witness level. This, is, this does not mean that the other Jewish boys were not saved, you know, besides Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael who come along with him. But the others that were taken in that first exile, doesn't mean that those young boys weren't saved. Probably some of them were. I hope many of them were. What did it take to be saved? They had to believe in the true God and his promised Messiah. We're talking here, and we don't know their hearts, but what we're talking about here is their level of commitment they did not choose the level of commitment and the level of witness as high as Daniel did. Um, Daniel put his priority on purity, not on position, you know, potential position that he could have in the palace. He didn't put his priority on popularity. He didn't put his priority on political correctness or on preservation. He could have, you know, this might mean my life if I don't go along with this but he put his priority on purity. Conviction is belief with boots on, ready to fight for what it believes and ready to even die. Conviction is, is belief with boots on. So he chose obedience to God over obedience to man, even when that man was a king as powerful as Nebuchadnezzar. He chose a higher level of commitment. Now, the Hebrew text literally reads that Daniel laid the decision to do right upon his heart. The choice was made in his mind, but rather than letting his emotions or his feelings or his flesh get in the way of his mental decision, he gathered up all of his energies into an unshakable determination of his heart. What does that speak of? His inner man, his soul. He, did, he gathered his energies and he determined that he was going to carry through with his conviction at all costs. He counted the cost and he determined he would do it anyway. His conviction wasn't superficial and it wasn't fleeting. It was deep. It was steadfast. It was immovable. And as we're going to see, he came up then with a course of action that he followed to its conclusion, even knowing that the conclusion could mean his own death. 
Nebuchadnezzar was certainly not a very benevolent man. He was not a considerate of other people's convictions kind of a guy, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, those who displeased King Nebuchadnezzar could generally expect a quick and a gruesome death. Do you remember what he did to King Hezekiah, the last king of Judah? The last thing he did was kill his sons right in front of the king's eyes, and then, so that it would be the last thing he ever saw, the death of his own sons, Nebuchadnezzar had his eyes burned out with a hot, fire-hot poker. Just horrible to think about. Um, and then we find that in chapter 2, when we get to chapter 2, he, he's furious with his Chaldean wise men <laughs> because they can't tell him his dream that he forgot. You know, he wants to know what it meant, but he can't remember what it was, and they can't tell him. So he condemns them to be cut into pieces and for the houses to be made into dung, dung hills. Um, and when they are cut in pieces, they're alive, limb by limb, finger by finger, and they're alive during the whole thing. Not a very pleasant man. Fortunately for those wise men, Daniel came to their rescue. He saved their lives. We also know that when Daniel's friends would not bow to that great image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, really to represent him, and they wouldn't bow down, what did he have them do? What did he have happen to them? Thrown into, he, he was, remember, he's the, the fire king, the fiery furnace king. <laughs> he had them thrown into a fiery furnace that he had stoked up seven times hotter than normal. Not a pleasant man. And then we find out from Jeremiah 29, 22, that he rid himself of two prophets that he didn't like, two false prophets, by roasting them on an open fire, like pigs. I mean, he really was big into fire. What do they call that, pyromaniacs or something? Yeah, yeah, he was the furnace king. He was not a nice dude, and he was an expert on torture. So, put yourself in Daniel's sandals. How many of us would have been tempted to say, so what's the big deal about a little lobster tail? <laughs> a shrimp cocktail, a ham sandwich, you know? <laughs> it sure beats death by torture. Telling you, I'd be tempted. Daniel was extremely, I can't even imagine how courageous he was. As a, he could have been 13, 14 years old to stick to his convictions. Nobody, nobody can accuse Daniel of being a weak-kneed, uh, wishy-washy kind of a young teenager. And what makes his stand even more amazing is that he was all alone in this. Verse 8 makes it clear that Daniel was the originator of the purposed heart, don't eat the meat conviction. It came from him. There was no parent around, no rabbi. No prophet of God standing there, you know, prodding him. You have got to do what's right. Nobody there. The other boys are not mentioned until later on when we find that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael joined him in his protest. But it was by way of Daniel's leadership. He's the leader in this. The initial conviction to resist the king's order came from our man, Daniel. Our boy, we should say. If you take a stand for the word of God, you must be prepared to stand alone because very, very few, even from God's people, have you noticed, will take that stand with you. 
when you take a stand on the word of God, very few, especially in our Laodicean age, will take that stand with you. Of some 60 Jewish sons of royalty and nobility taken in exile with Daniel, how many took a stand with him? Only three. Well, now, just think of all the rationalizations that likely took place in the minds of the other Jewish captives. And I say likely because they did not join Daniel and his three friends in refraining from the king's food and wine. So we know they did capitulate to their own rationalizations, their own thinking process, their excuses, their justifications. And Daniel himself could have, he could have resorted to using any one of these self-justifying excuses for disobeying God's word, because they all would appeal to the natural instinct within every one of us to preserve our own lives at all costs. You know, merely believing what is right to do and even wanting to do what is right, when I say right, I mean in accordance with God's will and God's uh, way, merely believing what is right and wanting to do what is right is not enough to take a stand against the onslaught of temptation that this world throws at the Christian. That's not enough. We must, like Daniel, we must be decisive to obey God at all costs. And with that resolve, we must make up our minds ahead of time, ahead of time, on the course of action that we're going to take in the face of each potential temptation. Have you ever thought through things like, what would I do, based on God's word, if this particular temptation came upon me, because sometimes temptations just that, you know, you don't have time to think when you're in it, so you need to think these things through ahead of time. Do you think Joseph had thought ahead of time what he would do if Potiphar's wife approached him? Don't you think she'd been flirting a little bit before? He knew what he would do in that case. He would flee from, resist that temptation at all costs. Well, Daniel, same thing. He thought about this ahead of time, purposed in his heart, and he came up with a plan and how he would um, not eat the king's food at all costs. If your mind is not made up ahead of time, then a debate is going to take place. There's going to be a debate waging in your heart when temptation does come, and it does come, doesn't it? It comes all the time. Your flesh is going to look for ways to rationalize sinful choices, while at the same time, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit indwells you, the Holy Spirit is going to be convicting you. At the same time, your flesh is trying to rationalize, you can go ahead and get away with this, the Holy Spirit is going to be saying, no, that's wrong. So there's going to be what? A debate, a war going on within you. And you don't want to put yourself in the position of a debate with, your, with yourself because people get in trouble when they try to debate with their flesh. The flesh is amazingly strong. It's far easier to resist the temptation of the king's delicacies when you have thought through the decision that you're going to be faithful to the word of God no matter what. Think ahead of time. Uh, draw your lines right now. Draw your lines and you'll be ready to say what when the temptation comes? No. And mean it. You draw your lines and you stand by them. Behind every sinful downfall, there is a process of wicked thinking, which could have gone like any of these. All right, here's where we're going to have fun. These are all the possibilities that these boys could have come up with, including Daniel. 
excuses for going ahead and eating the king's meat and wine. Daniel could have thought to himself, who's going to know? Mom and dad aren't here. Or maybe the laws of Israel don't apply here when we're taken into a foreign land and we're captives and we have no choice about the food that is being prepared for us. Would God really want us to starve to death? Or here's another excuse he could have come up with. Um, I'm not responsible for this judgment that has come upon me because of the sins of my predecessors. You know, it's not my fault we're, we were taken captive. Remember King Hezekiah? He's the one who messed up. And all, the, all my forefathers who were worshiping idols. I didn't ever worship an idol. This isn't my fault that this judgment is on. I don't deserve this. I don't think God is going to hold me responsible for yielding to my circumstances and making the best of it. I mean, if you're handed a lemon, what do you do? This is my fault, not my fault, so I'm going to make some lemonade out of this and enjoy that lobster roll. <laughs> Plus, it isn't really that big of a deal, is it? After all, it's just food. What I put in my body has no effect on my mind or my soul. Hmm. You know, that's how we all got in this mess. <laughs> Eve, one bite, you know. Is that true? Do what we put in, can, is what we put in our body, can it affect our mind or our soul? Oh, yeah. Think about some of the things people put in their bodies, okay? Uh, alcohol, marijuana, cocaine, heroin, uppers, downers, pills of every kind, day after abortion pills, uh, immorality, a lot of things we put in our body affect our minds and our souls. But he, said, he might have said, well, it's just food. Um, besides, maybe my convictions from backwoods little Judah are not so important after all. I mean, is God really so rigid that he would prevent his own followers from partaking of these delicacies that the whole rest of the world is obviously enjoying so much? You know, swan meat, pelican, rodent. <laughs> Everybody else is doing it. Besides, all these other Jewish guys are complying with the king's command. In fact, they're smacking their lips. And they're even getting happier than I've seen them in a long time. <laughs> and isn't the old cliche, when in Rome or Babylon, do as the Romans or the Babylonians? Plus, I don't want to isolate myself from my peers. After all, they're the only family I have now. They're going to think I'm just trying to be a goody two-shoes. If I don't participate with them, they're going to talk about me behind my back, and they're, and, and they're going to all steer clear of me, just like our people rejected God's spokesmen, the prophets. And how am I going to win the king? And how am I going to win all the other pagans in this palace if I don't participate with them, if I don't sit down with them and sip their wine and nibble their meat? And here's an interesting thought process for not resisting temptation. How about this one? If I do not obey the king and eat the food that he has so generously placed before me, I will never make it to a place of influence in his palace. 
How then can I have a testimony for God if I'm not able to stand before the king and his court? How will I be able to represent, be God's representative in the Babylonian White House for my people if I am going to be dismissed from King Nebuchadnezzar's presence? Can you see yourself talking yourself into that one? Well, I can have a greater influence if I just go along with this, and then I get the king's ear, and I can, you know, through that, change everything. Surely the Lord views my opportunity to serve him in this providential way as more important than my obedience to his dietary laws. You know, isn't one more important than the other? Here's another line of reasoning. It's an order from the king. We're taught to respect and obey those in authority over us. Right? Aren't we? Well, I may not agree with the menu on the table, but God himself is the one who put me under the authority of Nebuchadnezzar. Hmm. You know, most of the world has gone along with these kinds of reasoning. You know, the, I mean, the Christian world has gone along with this. And another one, well, I know it's wrong, but I also know that God will forgive me. If this was a normal circumstance, I would certainly obey God's law concerning this food and drink. However, we are in anything but normal circumstances, and I'm sure God doesn't expect absolute obedience in, to his dietary laws under this very unique and difficult situation. He's going to understand, and he'll forgive me. You know, he'll forgive me. I'll just go ahead and do it. And then, too, if anyone could try to justify bitterness against God, it would be Daniel who could have said to himself, it's God's fault that I'm here to begin with. He failed me. He failed my people. So what obligation do I have to obey him? He took everything from me. He took my parents from me. He took my brothers, my sisters, my home, my country, my freedom, my manhood. Bitter, you know. If he hadn't put me in this horrific predicament of having to serve a pagan egotist, then I would not find it necessary to break his law. But I'm going to do it. It's his fault anyway. It's that woman you gave me, God. <laughs> Remember that? Forsaking the laws of a God who had seemed to have forsaken him would have been an easy course for a young teenage boy. And here, by the way, is another truth. It doesn't necessarily take age for a believer to be spiritual. A person does not have to be a senior citizen to have holy convictions, right? Young people can possess great spiritual convictions because they're not conditioned on our age, but they're conditioned on our heart attitude. It has nothing to do with age. The best time of all girls to have Godly, holy convictions is when you're young. Just think about all the important decisions you make when you're young. Uh, you know, where you're going to go to college, if you're going to go to college or vocational school or whatever you're going to do with the rest of your life, you make that decision generally pretty young. College choice, career choice, marriage, very important decision, who you're going to marry. Um, children come into the picture, and then you have to decide how you're going to educate your children, homeschool, Christian school, public school, whatever school, uh, where we're going to go to church, church choice, all kinds of very critical decisions are made in our early years. So ha it's good to have those holy convictions when you're young. Charles Spurgeon said that much of one's future depends on the early years. 
right? Is that not so true, those of us who are older? No. <laughs> Some of us made not very good decisions when we were younger, and we're paying the price now. Back to the subject of potential excuses, okay? These are fun. Um, <clears throat> he could have said, my disobedience to the king will probably cost me my life. Surely God values my life more than he values my obedience to him in this rather inconsequential matter of food, you know, that really is beyond my control anyway. Wouldn't that be a good one? I think I'd probably try to use that one. Surely, God, my life is more important than pork chops, right? <laughs> or, or there's also this idea, which comes across as being very pious. This is another good one to talk yourself into. My disobedience to the king may very well cost the life of Ashpenaz, that poor innocent man. You know, he's the one who's responsible for what we eat and for uh, what we drink in obedience to the king's command. So how can I possibly demonstrate the love of my God to this pagan official if, I, uh, if my disobedience to my God ends up costing him his life? That's very pious sounding, right? I don't want that poor guy to get killed because of me. Doesn't love overrule all? We can see with all of these possible, and you might come up with some more. Those are just some that I thought of. But with all these possible lines of reasoning to justify disobeying God's divine law, you can understand why most of the young men ate the king's meat and drank the king's wine. And consider, too, the fact that Daniel and the others who were taken to Babylon with him would have been at a very serious low point after having experienced such trauma, <clears throat> excuse me, trauma in their young lives as a teenager, you know, just to be yanked out of everything you ever knew, especially away from your family. And the devil certainly knows when and how to strike, doesn't he? Watch out for the devil when you're where? At a low point. He knows he's most effective in destroying an individual's faith or his testimony when we are down, when we're depressed, when we're discouraged, and when we think to ourselves, what's the use anyway? You know, what's the use in trying to walk the straight and narrow? Very few others are doing it. They seem to be having more fun than I am. And it really hasn't gotten me very far, has it? Look at me down in this pit. Watch out when your thinking is like that, because when you're thinking like that, temptation is going to appear looking very sweet and very delicious, even if it is in the form of frog legs. <laughs> Daniel had every reason to rationalize his situation and to compromise, didn't he? It would not have meant the end of his salvation. It would have just been a lowering of his level of commitment. However, we find that throughout his long life, and he lived into his 80s, he never, ever, ever compromised with the world. This initial test as a young teenager, this test, which he passed with flying colors, set the pattern for the rest of his life. He proved faithful to God's word, God honored that faithfulness, as we're going to see, Lord willing, next week. God honored that faithfulness in many ways and 
Daniel's faith only grew stronger. After each test, his faith grew stronger and stronger until he was even thrown in a lion's den. Right? Praise the Lord. No wonder they sing that song, Dare to be a Daniel. We're going to find in the next lesson that Daniel, although dogmatic and inflexible in his conviction to obey God at all costs, he did not do damage to his God, to his testimony for his God. He did not do damage to his own integrity by going on a fanatical rampage of protests. Now, he didn't get a picket, you know, form a picket line and get a placard and start marching in front of the palace saying, I will not eat the king's meat, you know. Uh, Jewish lives matter or something like that. <laughs> I just came up with that one. Um, <laughs> instead, you know what he did? He proceeded through all the right channels to get permission. He actually got permission to abstain from the king's food. And he did it with courtesy and with a gentle spirit. So much to learn from this young guy. It's great. This is a truth that has stood unfailing throughout the centuries of history. God uses those for his glory who are willing and determined, regardless of the cost, to set a standard above the level of mediocrity. Do you just want to be a mediocre Christian? Do you? Don't settle for mediocrity. Settle for a level above the average. And so those are the people he uses. He certainly used Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Because here we are, what, 2,600 years later? And who are we talking about? These guys. And on the other hand, what about the other one, ones? We don't even know their names, do we? Not saying they're not in heaven, but we don't know their names, and they didn't really glorify their Lord with their lives, did they? Because they compromised. Thank you. Wow, look at the clock. <laughs> That's good. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the example of Daniel. We're just beginning to learn from this young man who will grow into um, an older man, but there's so much to learn from his life, and I thank you for leading us to this study of him. Father, may we all hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against thee because that is so important to have your word in our heart so when those temptations come, we won't sin against you that we've already purposed in our heart what we will do. We've drawn the, the line in the sand and no matter what, we won't cross it. Father, I ask that each and every one of us in this room would keep our hearts with all diligence because out of them are the issues of life. Mm. So important. I pray for every woman here, Father, to determine in her heart, purpose in her heart, that she will live a level of witness for you, a level of commitment for you that is way above mediocrity. We want to shine all the more brighter for you in this dark age in which we live. Lord, now um, go with us. Help us to each be safe, to be salt and light in the, in the week when we're apart and to return together excited again about getting in your word. We love you, Jesus. We thank you so much for giving your precious sinless blood that it might circulate through our bodies and give us eternal life. We pray in your name. Amen. God bless you.